culture. Like culture is what we do, but how we connect to each other. And that art really creates culture and culture creates community and community creates humanity. And so if we are neurobiologically wired to bring the world and to create those highly salient experiences that build neural pathways, that connect us to ourselves and to each other, the arts are sort of fundamental and foundational. Well, hey everyone, Dr. David Perlmutter here and welcome once again to our program, The Empowering Neurologist. And of course, with that name, you would think that we are gonna be exploring uh, brain health, brain function. Really, I think for the most part, that's what we do. We look at lifestyle issues, for example, and how they impact the brain, the brain's functionality, the resistance that we gain uh, to disease when we're engaged in one sort of lifestyle choice and, or another. And I recently came upon this book, Your Brain on Art, and wondered about what happens when we are engaged in art, be it the graphic arts or uh, music or even culinary arts, whatever it may be, that creativity, what is going on in the brain? And that is what is explored in this incredibly fascinating book. Um, I wish we would have talked about this information sooner because it's really very, very rich. There's some incredibly positive effects of participating in art uh, in terms of what's going on uh, in the brain. So I reached out to the authors, Susan Magsman and Ivy Ross to join us on the program today. Let me tell you a little bit more about our authors. Susan Magsman is the founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab, Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where she's a faculty member. Also the co-director of the NeuroArts Blueprint. Magsman works with both the public and private sectors using artistic and cultural approaches in areas including health, child development, education, workforce innovation, rehabilitation, and social equity. Ivy Ross is the Vice President of Design for Hardware Products at Google, where she leads a team that has won more than 225 design awards. She is a National Endowment for the Arts grant recipient and was the ninth on Fast Company's list of the most uh, 100 most creative people in business in 2019. And I'm really excited about this interview, so we're going to get right to it. Susan, Ivy, uh, great to see you both. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great Thanks to be for here. having us. I, I like having three people because uh, it makes it more challenging for me because I have to direct my questions to one or the other, or maybe whoever feels uh, you know that they really want to answer the question, just go for it. We don't yep. stand on ceremony. But I do want, I'll start with Susan and ask you this question. Um, and I think it's a typical lead in that I, I think I often do is why the interest? What got you started in wanting to understand how experiencing art might have an effect on the brain? So it's great to be here. And um, Ivy and I love doing these three-way interviews because it's like um, three-dimensional chess. It's, you know, you never know who's going to move and what's going to happen. So it's really, it's really great. Um, for me, um, I, I've always loved nature and nature's always moved me in so many different ways and so many different mood states and, and, you know, and, you know, different weather, um, has always, I've just loved, loved that. Um, so nature really, I guess has, was my immediate sort of connection to 
physiology and neurobiology, but I'm a twin. And when I was 12 years old, my sister had a farming accident and she almost lost her leg. And I've told this story a lot lately, but it's so profound um, how these moments in your life can really make you change course. Um, so she was traumatized and couldn't um, really express what was happening to her. But my mom suggested that she start drawing and, um, and in some ways to pass the time, but it turned out that way before we understood the power of uh, metaphor and symbol in helping to create, build narrative around trauma, which now is work that's being done quite regularly for PTSD and, and trauma, um, my sister started drawing and I was able to learn how she was feeling and what was going on with her that she couldn't verbalize, that she couldn't express. And you know, for a twin, most twins um, kind of have this this seventh sense where you know what the other person's feeling and thinking all the time. We finish each other's sentences. We, you know, we kind of, you know, if she sways left, I sway right. Um, I didn't know, and it was through her drawing that I was really able to understand. And I think I learned then the power of, in this case, visual art. But then I came from a family of makers um, and we always made to express ourselves. And so those two things I think came together along with nature for me. And I just wanted to understand the why, you know, like why is this happening? And that really moved me into wanting to be interested in, in first cognitive science and then psychology um, and then the neurobiology of how the arts change us. And when you know that, how can you use that in service of humanity? wherever that is in health or well-being or learning. So, um, you know, it's only in the rear view mirror, do you know where you've been? You couldn't, I couldn't have plotted this course, but as I look back, those are kind of some of the, the, the turns in the road that got me here. Uh, you know, I, the truth of the matter is in, in preparation for our time together today, I did at the gym the other day, listened to you both interviewed on another podcast, uh, which I generally like to do in order to prepare, as well as read read the book. Uh, and I had not heard that uh, story. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you know, it, it's what people do with adversity. And look what look what uh, you know how that propelled you to a, a place where you are today. Ivy, how about you? Yeah, well, for me, art and the brain are two of my favorite subjects. Um, and I've been, I started as an artist. I've been a designer. And I really feel like we have been optimizing for productivity and efficiency, and we push the arts aside. Mm -hmm. And um, it is our birthright. We are wired to be sensorial beings. And so I was very interested when Susan reached out to me to be on her luminary board member and said, we now have the science to prove that the arts will aid in health and well-being, I was like, oh my God, I know that intuitively, but the fact that there is now the science, I am in. Um, because those of us who have been in the arts know how important it is to express yourself. And it doesn't even matter how good you are, it's about expressing yourself and you could feel what it does for yourself. So I, that was my interest in, um, when Susan suggested we do this book together, I said, this is the book I've been waiting for. Because I've, I've, in the previous life, I've been asked to write books on creativity, innovation, and I, that's what I do every day. Um, but I'm a lifelong learner, and so to be able to bring um, our talents and gifts together and tell these stories, 
was fantastic. I like the lifelong learner. I, 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 I'm hoping that includes me as I think about it. That, I like the terminology. Um, in reading the book, it, it's interesting because first, as I was re- even right from the beginning, asking myself, well, where have I been all this time that I've been so focused on lifestyle, on diet, on getting enough sleep, exercise in terms of, of my outreach? And what, what a powerful tool. Hey, I've been to Jim Gordon lectures for years and years. We lecture the same place uh, in New York every year for the past probably 15 years. And I've heard his lectures and I've, I'm thinking, mea culpa, why have I not really, you know, exploited the use of art uh, as he has so wonderfully uh, described? And, and I was also taken, uh, my wife trained with Dr. Austin and uh, with eidetic imagery and how you referenced his work and how the whole notion of imagery and calling up imagery and what is the emotional downstream manifestation of that imagery. uh, You know, there's a a lot of touch points for me in the book. Uh, So um, I'm really wondering, gee whiz, why why hasn't been sooner for me, but again, better late than than never. Um, At the beginning of the book, the text talks about how art isn't just something that has kind of followed humanity, but that it's sort of necessary for humanity. Uh, I think the word was survival, that you you indicate art is kind of uh, allowed us to persevere, allowed us to survive. So how does that happen? How does art pave the way for humanity to survive? Well, you know, we we interviewed indigenous peoples and because we went back and thought, when did this word art even happen? And they never had a word uh, called art because it was just the way they lived. It was the it was our culture, you know, storytelling, singing, dancing, painting, um, making pottery. That was just the way we we lived. And also, you know, we were also very fortunate to interview E.O. Wilson, the, the Harvard evolutionary biologist. Right before he passed, um, we interviewed him, and during the finishing the book, he passed. And he was an amazing soul. And he believed that it was this innate uh, ability to bring the world in through our senses and to create meaning in the form of art and aesthetics um, that really created the conditions for humanity to grow and to, and to, and to, 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 to grow and to change over the course of the millennial. And he, he talked a lot about this idea that when we harnessed fire and we brought people around the circle and the way that we shared our nights Mm -hmm. were story and sharing what was important to us. And then the movements and the sound and the connection that we created, those bonds were um, very deep neurobiological, neural pathways, neurochemicals that we created community, you know, culture, like culture is what we do, but how we connect to each other and that art really creates culture and culture creates community and community creates humanity. And so if we are neurobiologically wired to bring the world and to create those highly salient experiences that build neural pathways that connect us to ourselves and to each other, the arts are sort of fundamental and foundational. Yet, as Ivy alluded to earlier, because we've been so so um, honed for productivity, 
Um, and we've basically become so transactional that we're no longer transformational. We're no longer thinking about what matters and what has meaning. Um, and so this, I think the depth of, of these experiences, it's more like what's the matter with you, not what matters to you and how do you get at what matters to you? And so I think the reason, another reason that this work is so vital right now is we're all really searching for connection um, new connection, meaningful connection, and and also trying to heal. And that's what the arts have always done, you know, through ritual and routine and ceremony and all those things that are in every found in every culture. Hey, you guys, we're going to get right back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to let you know that today's program is being sponsored by Apollo Neuro. Uh, this is a wearable device that I've talked about before. Uh, unlike many wearable devices that you're familiar with, this isn't just measuring uh, activity uh, of one sort or another in your body. This is actually doing things uh, to your body that are positive by sending gentle vibrations that you're actually able to perceive and doing some really great stuff like uh, improving concentration, for example, improving heart rate variability. That's what it did for me and actually improving deep sleep as well. Let's take a look at the device. So again, this is a device that isn't just measuring things, but it's actually doing some really good things to your health because it strengthens your nervous system. And it was developed by neuroscientists and physicians really to bring balance to your nervous system for better sleep, more energy, relaxation, and focus. And it has been uh, the subject of testing uh, by thousands of individuals in clinical and real world trials. And across the research, the wearers of this device have experienced up to a 40% reduction in stress and feelings of anxiety, up to 19% more time in deep sleep, 11% increase in heart rate variability on average, and up to 25% more focus and concentration. And here's some really good news. You can get a 15% discount at the time of checkout by clicking on the link at the in the episode description. Uh, you'll visit the uh, site, which is apolloneuro.com and use the promo code Perlmutter so you can get your hands on this device that I have found very helpful. Now let's get right back to our episode. Well, interestingly, um, this notion of connectivity, I think it, it, it's that art is involved in at multiple levels. You know, from the macro level, what you just described is a connectivity of, of, of our culture, of people to one another, which seems to be on, on the decline, that's for sure. But even uh, you know down to the neuronal level, that art fosters the the connection of neurons, synaptogenesis, and even the growth of neur uh, neurons, neurogenesis. And incredibly, you there was one section, if I got this correct, that you indicated that art actually does enhance the brain's production of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which I think many of our viewers are familiar with. We always talk about various. Uh, interventions to help bump up BDNF so we can grow new neurons. Who wouldn't want that? Things like DHA as a supplement, certainly exercise, et cetera. And here, engaging art, engaging creativity changes us in a, a chemical way to increase the production of this nurturing chemical, trophic uh, hormone, as it were, that allows neurons to make better connections. And as you well described, this is, you know, really explains to some degree why participation in art, and you provided so many examples, is associated with, for example, better emotional regulation and better uh, memory, 
-hmm. And you know, the wonderful thing is it's not just, you don't just have to be a creator or maker of art, but also the beholder of art, you know, and these salient experiences that these art experiences give you make those new synaptic connections. It's also interesting, uh, you, you made me think about this, like, you know, the, the myelination um, enhancements that happen too. So creating this ability for, for neuropathways to work better is, is such a protective um, attribute for us. And I think, you know, we have also seen some beautiful work by Asal Habibi from University of Southern California, looking at literally changing brain structure and brain mass. So, you know, I can't think of too many things that actually grow the brain that actually provide more context in the cerebral cortex. And that's amazing, right? And so, and it's also, I have to say this, and I don't say this often because, and this is so stupid, it's fun. It's Preface. joyful. It's you want to do it more and more. And I don't know about you, but I don't find m most things um, that are supposed to be good for me fun for me. And and you know what a what a gift that this is joyful. And I think we should celebrate that. And you know we need more joy. We need more fun. And and we need more play. And this is that. And I I think you know we talk about all the benefits, but one of the huge benefits is that. You want to do it like you, know, you want to dance. You know, I, Ivy knows this. I say this, too, is that, you know, I don't do any art form well, but I do them all often and to the chagrin of most of the people around me. Um, and that's OK, because I get tremendous benefit. Um, and, and that's, an, you know, you can dance anywhere, anytime. You can sing anywhere, anytime. You can do it anywhere, anytime. There aren't a lot of things lighter like that. I, I'm, there's no reason I'm telling you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, yesterday, I was interviewed by a neuroscientist in Brazil, uh, and every, with every question, he would translate it to Portuguese uh, for the audience. And then uh, I began the, the interview um, by saying, I'm really happy to be you know, doing this interview here in Brazil, and uh, I've always enjoyed Brazilian music, bossa nova, samba music, etc., work of Jobim and João Gilberto. And... As fate would have it, why I did this, I don't know. Maybe it's because we were all getting together today. At the end of the interview, still on live, right? I take out my guitar and I played uh, Samba de Una Nota, one note Samba for this guy. Oh. And he just looked at me and I thought, did I cross a line there? And I got an email from him this morning saying, oh, that was great. You know, he was very happy I did that. But Ivy, you said earlier something I think it's really very valuable. And uh, gosh, kind of a central question here. And that is, you know, we talk about creating and making art, but you alluded or actually stated that it's beholding and, part and observing, I think was your word, the art is, is so uh, engaging and beneficial. And uh, I think that's really an important concept because I think it segues nicely into the notion of, of being in an atmosphere that is enriched. I think we're seeing more and more um, you know, push to enrich our surroundings in, in our workplaces and certainly in our homes. So it really is beyond just, as, as Susan, you were talking about, beyond just doing the art, but even just observing the art, that I think that has great value as well. Yeah, and confronting yourself with seeing new things. You know, I think doctors in Canada and London are prescribing certain patients to go to museums just to literally exercise those neurons of putting yourself, confronting yourself 
with a sculpture, a painting that you may not, it's not already dug into your neural pathways, but you're making new connections and sitting in, in a theater embodied by uh, characters and music. And again, uh, you know, the fact that this is such a powerful tonic for the brain, doing all the things that we've been talking about for years in terms of increasing plasticity and con increasing connection. And one of the thing I want to, I'll bring it up right now. And I want to get back to the enriched environment part in just a moment was there was a section, uh, I think probably in the anxiety uh, section of the book where it was mentioned that art was demonstrated to calm the amygdala. And we wrote a book um, called Brainwash that really looked at how uh, overactivation of the amygdala makes us impulsive, makes us non-forward thinking, distances us from thinking about the consequences of our actions. And we talked about the various things we can do to help reduce amygdala hyperactivity, like get a good night's sleep, spend time in nature. But the art part was, uh, God, I, it put a smile on my face mm -hmm. to see that. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, music and sound are are really um, very effective in reducing amygdala activation. And I think in large part because it's so it's so immediate, right? I mean, like certain kinds of music, um, certain kinds of, and, and particularly autobiographical music that you relate mm. to at a very emotive level. But you know, what a, what a great tool, because that's also something that you have pretty immediate and pretty accessible to, we all, most of us all have phones or access to radio or, so to be able to use those kinds of tools on a, on a, on a when as ad need basis, I think is really important. I think there was in the book, uh, we were in the grocery store and a song came on into my mind or something from high school and brings you back to a certain place in time. Gosh, I, I so get that. It, uh, back to the Florida Keys, uh, listening to uh, certain music. Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. There's <laughs> me right back there. But the interventional part is what I like and uh, as well. And uh, Ivy, you are in a meeting where they are exploring a, a focus group response to a certain doll at Mattel. Correct. And the person, I think, heading up the project, a woman, sees that the response to all their work is not what she wanted. She gets really uh, nervous and anxious and you take out of your backpack two tuning forks, one C and one G, and that calms her down. Yes, I've been, that, studying, that was, go ahead. I've been studying sound and vibration for 30 years. And so um, I studied one of, one of my teachers was uh, Dr. John Bullier, but he, C and G are particularly a grounding combination because it's known to be the center of the core is earth are those two tones. But you, I also took out my little rubber hockey puck and you strike them on the hockey puck and then I held them to her ears and rotated one in each ear. And it was like, I could feel her blood pressure just going way down. And you know, there's some just preliminary studies that sound produces nit nitric oxide um, which relaxes people. But yeah, so th those tuning forks have come in handy when people are getting too anxious or too stressed. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the 40 hertz is the sort of 40 to 80 hertz is sort of that calibration of the Earth's um, 
Uh, well, 40 hertz is now known to be uh, not, it's a C and G that's the Earth's um, tones, but 40 hertz uh, to the work that the MIT woman is doing, right? With, with actually removing plaque from the brain, the combination of 40 hertz plus certain colors are sh being shown to uh, initiate plaque clearing on the brain. I mean, it's fascinating when you think of things that sound and color could activate parts of the brain. Well, you mentioned, uh, and you also mentioned in the book, the um, connection to then nitric oxide production. And that's profound. I mean, uh, we are just at the, at the beginning of a, a research project where we, an interventional trial in Alzheimer's patients where mm -hmm. we are going to administer something that will enhance nitric oxide production, knowing that nitric oxide is involved in the bioenergetics of brain functionality with respect to glucose utilization, mm -hmm. but also enhances blood supply, right. uh, both of which are, are clearly involved in um, the propagation of the Alzheimer's pathology that we see. And, you know, it, really trying to get upstream of where we currently are in terms of Alzheimer's research, focusing on just the production of beta amyloid. So, wow, who knew? Sound, another tool to uh, enhance oxide production. Let me um, go back to the enriched environment and uh, the work of Marion Diamond uh, back in the 1960s, where she was actually able to demonstrate in, I think, a rodent model, a pretty dramatic increase in the thickness of the cortex by about 6% uh, in rodents who lived in an enriched environment uh, versus an environment that was pretty, pretty dull. And how do we translate that uh, type of research from the 1960s for crying out loud? What do we do with that today? Well, you know, Marion Diamond was a, a real hero and a real pioneer. Um, you know, she was uh, reprimanded by male neuroscientists in, in the 60s for thinking that um, she could really um, have such a profound insight around neuroplasticity. And, you know, it wasn't believed what she said for a really long time. And it really has not been that research as seminal as it was, has not really been used in in thinking about enriched environments for people as much as it should have been. I think the movements are changing now and there's a lot more work around intentional spaces. But, you know, the profound impact of enriched environments where there's novelty, surprise, awe, curiosity awe. is amazing, right? And to see that kind of growth in such a short period of time. But the inverse is also true. In an impoverished environment, brain mass decreased. And so, you know, you think about the effects of that on um, communities where there are impoverished environments, where there's not enough light, there's not enough good air, there's not enough access to nature. And so we have not used that really extraordinary work. Um, it's, it's now starting to be built on. And I think the implications for urban design, for thinking about um, school design, healthcare design, um, we're starting to see more and more of that. Um, the next couple of days, I'm going to be down at NIH for um, a meeting that I think is just unprecedented, where we're looking at the, the work around enriched environments and sound and music. And and what we know now after five years of, a, of an investment 
and where we can go from here. So NIH is starting to put money in, the, in this country into research around the role of these aesthetic experiences for health and well-being and learning. And I think we're going to start to see that accelerate more and more and more. But it's taken us a very long time to be able to kind of use that research that she started with and, you know, and really catapult it to meaningful practice. And, you know, a lot of these public spaces have been designed for efficiency on a grid or, um, you know, health spaces, schools, even homes. And what we're finding is space changes the way you think. It changes the way you feel. And so to be more aware of all the sensorial aspects of light, color, sound in a space and how it will profoundly affect us, I mean, People, architects are really, uh, in fact, there's whole degrees now that you can get in neuroaesthetics and architecture. It's becoming a, a field. And, you know, uh, I, I was chatting with um, a fellow last week, Dan Butner, who, uh, Blue Zones. And, mm. you know, that, that is something that really is, characterizes each and every one of these environments of the places that he studied is that they are rich and they are rich not because they were enriched mm -hmm. uh, and there was an active uh, effort to enrich these environments. They were naturally mm -hmm. rich by their, their very nature. And I think that is so often overlooked. You know, we, we say, well, the, the, the Japanese Shirinruku are, are, you know, creating this forest bathing idea that we're actually going to take people out and put them in the forest for a period of time. And believe it or not, I don't know how you get away that we're asking them to turn off their cell phones. Gee whiz. And, and, you know, they're seeing incredible benefits in terms of changes, for example, in their salivary cortisol levels right off the bat. Minutes. Stress. Yeah. 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 Uh, that they go down quite dramatically. And, and now research is showing that that even happens in cities when people go into a park, even in the city and even happens back to the enrichment part of the story when people get a house plant <laughs> and yeah. put it, Put a houseplant in, in their homes. So it's it's really about kind of um, reconnecting. I, I think, that, Susan, you mentioned sort of the awe of nature. And we're just, I think, uh, really beginning to realize how incredibly powerful that is, not only in terms of the threat that is posed by our distancing from these experiences these days, but, you know, to, to make up for our transgressions, how it can uh, be utilized uh, therapeutically. Yeah, well, you know, E.O. Wilson also reminded Susan and I that 99.8% of the time us humans have been on this planet, we lived in nature. It's been only 0.2% that we've lived in the built environment. And so it's our nature to be in nature. And nature is the most neuroaesthetic place there is because it has everything. It has sound, temperature, color, shape, texture. So that is um, the way we were designed to live. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't surprise me that to keep ourselves in health and wellness, that we need to be back in nature much more than we are today to have those sensory systems alive. And when we can't be in nature, some of these other art experiences will do some of the same things. That's right. And again, not everybody lives next door to a national park, but uh, there might be a park in your city or there might be a street with trees or, as mentioned, uh, get some houseplants. Even, you know, it's been demonstrated that even uh, looking at images of natural environments versus geometric images 
uh, is associated with changes in functional MRI imaging of the amygdala, which is something we were talked about earlier. Well, hi everyone, Dr. David Perlmutter here. Uh, we hope you're enjoying this content, and if you would do so, go ahead and hit the like button. And if you're not already a subscriber to our channel, please consider doing so. Uh, we're really grateful to have you as part of our community, so let's get right back to the presentation. Later in the book, you talk about poetry, mm -hmm. and I would admit that's not an area I've spent a lot of time, though reading it, but not ever creating it. Um, there's great value in poetry, and what is poetry to start off with? Well, you know, it is the, it's recognized as the oldest art form, and it's really a form of metaphor and symbol. And, you know, you don't really think about that, but it's really a way to use language to create um, visual image. And, and, and we relate to symbol and metaphor before we really know how to construct um, our sort of conscious thinking. And so it's a very sort of an extraordinary art form. It's also interesting that um, poetry activates the same part of the brain that music does. And so, and not just rhyming. Um, and so I think there, there's an interesting sort of correlation between the way that poetry is even structured and, and created. And so it's another opportunity, I think, to, to really, as the maker, you're creating visual imagery, you're creating metaphor, but as the beholder, you're, you're putting that into your own frame. Oh, that's okay. As it relates to poetry, I believe that there was a comment uh, that indicated that perhaps on fMRI, uh, or, or there was changes that are occurring in the brain functionality, even prior to understanding the meaning of the words, just based on the, perhaps the musical aspect of poetry or the, the cadence and the, the rhyming, et cetera. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's also, one of the things that makes poetry so so unique is that it's activating these other parts of the brain that are not um you know the, they're not around necessarily language acquisition they're really more around sound and the way like the difference between how we process a sound like rock and stone right they're so highly visual and we see something very very different when we're using those dif those different words and they resonate in a way that you know, from a sound perspective, separate from understanding word meaning. And, and that happens through poetry more than it does through um, fiction or creative nonfiction. So it's a whole lane and your know, spoken word also falls into that category. So, you know, some of the work that we're seeing now um, that's, that's really lyrical also operates on the same pattern. So it's sort of, you know, a, it's a spectrum of the way we think about language and, and metaphor. What is, um, maybe some examples, what are some examples of actually using art from an interventional perspective to treat mental illness? I mean, where are we as it relates to that relationship? Well, I'll just give you one example and then I'll let Susan add on of, um, I mean, this is more trauma than mental illness, but I think maybe you read in the book about a woman who was training firemen when they would come out of a fire who would be traumatized, they would take that trauma home with them. Um, and she started instead giving them a paintbrush and a canvas as soon as they come out of that fire to start to just put that paint on the paper and start to express what they were feeling. And the young fireman that we interviewed said he could go home to his family and leave that behind because so often these 
I think we have these micro traumas and macro traumas that just keep piling on until it creates mental illness. And so that, that was one example. Yeah, and we talked about yeah. Go ahead. I was saying, Go ahead. We talked about a lot of different mental states um, from stress and anxiety to depression to bipolar disorder. We talked about schizophrenia in the book. Um, you know, we, and, and I think, you know, some of the, the, the ways that we talked about arts and mental health had to do with symptom relief. Um, so being able to, for example, working with um, James Pennebaker's work in expressive writing, not necessarily poetry, although it could be, but getting an idea out of your head um, onto paper that's causing mm -hmm. you difficulty um, does two things. One, it lowers cortisol and it also lowers cognitive load. And so there's this, never have to share it with anybody. It's just the idea of getting these ideas that are really stuck inside of you out and, and being able to express them changes these huge factors for mental well-being. And then there are people like Garen, uh, uh, Garen, uh, uh, Brandon Staglin, who um, was diagnosed when he was in college with schizophrenia, and he was asked to take lithium and then other um, drugs to help modify or regulate that, he found that they made him feel less alive, like a zombie. And so he uses guitar playing to really feel alive, to really feel human. And so, you know, I think it's not, it's yes and. Sometimes these um, these art forms can be used for symptom relief or, you know, uh, we talked with um, Resma who um, does some beautiful work with intergenerational uh, black trauma, where this is, trauma that's deeply stuck inside of physiology for generation over generation and swaying and humming and dancing and moving and moving this stuck energy has really kept an entire community alive. And, you know, so, so really understanding that it's not just the disease, but it's how you can bring this work in for different moments when you're within a disease state or, um, and disease, right? It's out of ease. It's 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 in really trying to get to some kind of balance or equilibrium. Um, Ivy, maybe you want to talk about Judy's work, which I think is another great example. Oh yes, Judy Tuwalet Stewa. She decided she was going to do what she calls a continuous painting, um, which was actually motivated by cave paintings where the Indians would would paint in the cave and then whitewash over it and then tell another story. But she held a lot of trauma and she called it the continuous painting because she would paint, stand back, look at it, and then put white paint over it and do another painting on top of it. This went on for days. And so it, it's interesting in that she was getting out of her system whatever needed to come out unconsciously not judging it and not owning it. You know, this idea of painting over it immediately was, um, this wasn't to be judged, but this was literally being able to get, you know, emotions is energy in motion. So it's getting her energy out on the canvas. And by the end of it, she had, I saw in her studio, this beautiful thick white painting that she had photographed all like 40 different images that she had done. I'm glad she kept the photographs because the you could feel the aliveness through the texture of that white paint on the canvas but it was she understood 
her trauma and herself, it was like a, a mirror back to herself. So she actually did that. She has, she calls it the white, black and red painting during three different periods of her life where the end result is just the solid color, but underneath is layers and layers of her own emotional trauma that she was able to relieve. I, I think you said emotion, it means energy in motion. I, I, will, I will definitely uh, co-op that for future use. Um, Susie, you mentioned something earlier about that you do like to participate in art, although you don't, um, I, I forget how you said, but you don't feel like you're hugely talented, et cetera. You know, my sense is <clears throat> that probably, obviously based on your book, doesn't matter. <clears throat> but I think some people can feel um, a bit intimidated. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to tell you that I, our daughter is a professional artist. And to watch what she's able to do is if you're thinking you want to create a work of art, whatever that means, uh, to watch what some people are able to do can be, I guess, a little intimidating. She took us once to do figure uh, sketches of a, a woman nude uh, art uh, model. We had 15 minutes to draw what we perceived. And all our daughter did was shading. And um, looking at it, it's all just a bunch of shades. And I, of course, did the best I could, which ended up to be a, a stick figure with two circles on it, the best I could do. And then afterwards, when we looked at our work, you, when you step back from the shading, the whole paint, the whole drawing came to life as fully representing uh, what she had seen. Uh, but the point is that you don't need to be Van Gogh here, that everybody doing anything uh, that is creative is going to derive great, great benefit from letting your mind go to that place of creativity. I mean, you talked in the book about the default mode network, for example. And why don't we just double click on that for just a moment? What does that mean? And how is art then a portal to the default mode network? So maybe maybe to start with um, this idea around um, creativity and flow and being either um, a master at something and judging what you do, you know, that actually starts in the prefrontal cortex, where if you're learning how to be a great artist, you're interested in mastery and and practicing that skill and and that's prefrontal and you need that if you want to be a great artist um, but if you want to move into a creative flow state you don't have to be a great artist to do that what you need to do is turn off that judgment part of your brain mm. right the part that says you got to get better at this you got to get better at that and we have been taught early on that the only way that you should be doing art is if you're good at it, if you have a natural talent, right? Otherwise, we're shamed or told by third grade, it's not worth your time. There's nothing there for you, you know, move on. And so, so in, in that creative flow state, you're, you're in the process. So it's not about the product. It's not about the object. It's about what you're gaining through that process. Um, and, you know, we're always bringing in information that we're making or we're beholding, as Ivy said, and both are equally um, rich um, and they are they are different in, in, in the ways that they impact us. But the default mode network um, goes to work when you're not creating, when you're not bringing that work in. It goes to work when you are quiet. So, you know, in this very fast paced world we live in, we often don't just stop and let our brains process. And you know you know how sometimes you're in the shower and you have a really great idea and you're talking to yourself? It's because you're really just in that sort of in-between space. And, and you know we probably all have those moments where you're like, I just had a great idea. 
and you know, you're daydreaming, you're mind wandering, you're figuring out what you like and don't like, you're really allowing the default mode network to come online to process all of that sort of sensorial information. And so I think the takeaway with the default mode network is that if we don't allow ourselves to, to, to hit pause, we're not going to really be able to truly know ourselves. And it's really, it's that processing of the content. So we're just going to keep reacting as opposed to responding or reflecting or having insight, right? The default mode network is about looking inside. It's not about all the external stuff. And so that's sort of how that fits into this work. Um, and so it's much more about the journey than, than simply the destination of getting to getting to a place, yeah, absolutely. it's the actual participation in the process. Mm -hmm. And art is one of the highest forms of mindfulness. And actually, you know, Sharon Salzberg, who's, who was a big in the mindfulness move, movement, told us that. She said, no, art is one of the highest forms. And I think it's because, especially for those who can't sit and think of nothing, if you sit and you're in that flow state, it is meditative. If you're just this is such good stuff. I mean, this is really valuable. Yeah, no, because so I, many people, I can't meditate because my mind tends to blank. Right. Right. So, so, so direct. The, right. So the idea is give your mind something to do, but something to do that you're like you could doodle, you could fill in a coloring book, you could take a lump of clay and just start to to mold it and knead it. And I mean. Just getting your yourself out of that frontal lobe cognitive mind and into this other place is a form of mindfulness and meditation. Mindfulness. <laughs> well, um, the last area I wanted to explore is I think perhaps uh, for many of us, something we may not have a great opportunity to uh, participate in, and that is theater. You know, we can go, but but I, you know, you talked about acting and being and participating in that, and I think that's one of the arts where maybe it's less less accessible to us, less available to us. But yet, from your book, it's critically. Uh, it looks like it has some real critical impact on on the brain. Yeah, I I, I think we don't talk enough about theater, um, and both as a maker or the beholder. Um, you know, a couple years ago, there was a play came out called Dear Evan Hansen. I don't know if you remember that. Um, it was about um, youth suicide and um, and it was a musical. Uh, Benj Pasek was one of the uh, lyricists for it. Um, his mother's, a, interestingly, a cognitive neuroscientist. And it brought youth forward to really empathize and perspective take with this young boy whose friend had committed suicide. And it's a whole story about all these different points of view that happens for young adults when they are trying to find their way. And, and it's extraordinary. And so as the beholder of this play, um, youth had an opportunity to try on different roles and, and also to, to sort of um, empathize with the other audience members. And if you go to this, this play, it's the only play I ever went to that people cried almost through the entire thing. And it was amazing, amazing experience. They actually brought in youth mental health um, uh, organizations to work with youth who just were beginning to process all of this in such profound ways. Like that's a play on Broadway. And then as the actors, um, and, and this work has been done with um, uh, women that have been sexually abused, that are immigrant uh, immigrants, that are uh, unhoused, where they start to 
take on the role of the other. And that could be many different roles. It could be the person who is housed or the person who has stood up to their abuser. And they start to be able to feel what it feels like neurobiologically to be the person that they um, either feel like they need to be or want to be or grow into. And it's not unlike the eidetic imagery where you start to be able to take on a different perspective, a different point of view, and you feel it as the actor. And so what happens as well as the person that's taking on the role is the risk is lower, right? So you're not doing this in your real world. You're not saying to your abuser, hey, you know, you're moving out, I'm changing the locks. You're practicing. And as you start to practice, you start to know how that feels. And it's also very improvisational. And so it's a really extraordinary art form. And you know, the Greek tragedies and the Shakespeare, those are all human conditions that are still as relevant today as they were 2000 years ago, 1000 years ago, 500 years ago. And I think we're seeing more of this work come forward to help us see ourselves in a lower risk way and to be able to synchronize with each other about what's meaningful and what's important and what we what we take away. So I, I think theater is an extraordinary tool that um, is going to be is being used more and more. Yeah, and you know, you you make a point in the book about um, th the value of actually emotionality of experiencing emotionality, and I think generally uh, that we uh, live in a world that I think is trying to distance us or makes us feel as if we shouldn't be participating in emotions. That this is something uh, that demonstrates perhaps you know a weakness, flaw, you, you name it, and yet. You know, here you are describing a play in which people are crying from the very beginning in touch with their emotions and feeling comfortable enough to, to experience that. And uh, as in Shakespeare, as in participation and in, in tapping into those things and then being able to really assess us in terms of why was that an emotional experience for me and what does that tell you? And that gets back to the work, I think, of Dr. Austin, and that is you know, with the eidetic imagery, what are you feeling right now? How does it make you feel to imagine your uh, father or mother coming into the kitchen when you were nine years old? What, do you, what are you feeling? Yeah, yeah what is, it's uh, not just the image. It's It has three parts, the eidetic image. It's what do you see, you know, what do you feel, and what's the meaning attached to it? And that's the aesthetic triad that you talked about yep. in your book. And it's so powerful. And I think more and more we have to move towards these images uh, you know, we've been taught, we talk a lot now in society. And I think we have to, you know, stop talking so much and start imaging and imagining and stepping into and feeling into the future that we want to have for humanity. So these are new tools that could be used on multi levels. I hadn't planned to go to this place, but a thought just occurred, and that is uh, psychedelics uh, as a way of rekindling this connection that we are speaking of right now, this notion of, you know, being much more in touch with the emotionality of our experiences and interpretation of the meaning of those emotions uh, in the context of the experience. So one wonders if that is maybe playing upon some of the me mechanistically what art is doing uh, in terms of the brain. We're going to find out. Yeah, we're no, going to I think it absolutely is. I mean, I think at, at one end of the spectrum, psychedelics, plant medicine is being used to jumpstart some of the this emotionality and access 
And then I think we talk about in the book that the future of art, you know, we're already doing it. Instead of looking at a painting, we're stepping into paintings. There's all this experiential art that is designed literally to get you out of your mind and into your body and into a whole other imaginative place. So I think this is, you're absolutely right, it's all coming together for a reason at the same time. And there's a whole scale of participation. You know, I think in the future, maybe we'll be converting our, sh our empty shopping malls into places where you can literally step in someone off the street and have a, an experience, not taking any substance, but there's one artist group called Chromasonic where they literally, you, it's a 20 minute experience and you are um, seeing sound and feeling color. I mean, some of these experiences just twist the way your mind is used to thinking of things. And so by, by totally you not being able to make sense of it, it gives you an incredible sense of presence and release from, you know, from your, your mind and gives you a break and you come out from these experiences feeling incredibly renewed. So I think you've hit upon something that we think there's no accident that all this is coming into popularity. Well, I think we all have a little bit of synesthesia going on within us that we want to, you know, we don't really recognize it as such, but I have a sense, Susan, that you were about to say something when you said we're looking at that. Uh, what's the future hold for you in terms of looking at the use of psychedelics? Well, just adding on to what Ivy was saying is, you know, I think psychedelics are um, a way, a trigger, a way to get to a different conscious state of consciousness, a different state of mind. Um, but the arts are um, also a pretty effective way to get to a different state of mind. And we're doing a study at Hopkins right now, looking at four different types of music and sound. One is autobiographical, one is indigenous culture, another is um, kind of a random playlist. And then the fourth is different sort of nature sounds. And um, what we think is gonna happen is to your point about, you know, remembering, hearing a song, remember being in Florida or the Keys. And, you know, there are certain, we have playbooks, we have songbooks of our lives that are incredibly meaningful for us. And our hypothesis is that using those, those playbooks, we're gonna be able to elicit um, a heightened sense of consciousness um, that we think is going to activate similar parts of the brain that plant-based medicine does. And that makes a lot of sense because if you think about trance and people dancing into trance or drumming into trance, um, we can get to trance. We can get to these different altered states through these different experiences. Like Ivy was talking about optimizing sensory systems using technology. That's another way to get to these different heightened aesthetic states. And so we're looking at that with and without plant-based medicine to see sort of what's happening neurophysiologically, um, what's also happening um, from, for respiration, what's happening from the uh, uh, muscular system. So, you know, we're looking at multiple systems to see what we're really activating with a music state on its own and then music with a psychedelic. And so that study has just started and we're really excited about it because we think that it starts to show that there are many ways to get to start with an induction, an experience, and then an integration. And I think you were talking about that earlier, this idea of what's that arc of how do you integrate this experience, whatever it is that you've had. So you're pulling the pieces together for sort of sort of whole health. And, and that's another piece that sometimes, 
you have an experience and you haven't been able to really process it for many reasons. So that's integrate. It's another word for that is integration. How do you integrate it? Which is so important because I think having some of these transformative experiences without the integration, you know, I see some people that are <clears throat> using it for amusement or social and it's much too precious. I mean, I think you need that integration. Well, interestingly, you know, the, the traditional ayahuasca ceremony is carried out with obvious sound uh, involvement as well. You know, the chanting that goes on uh, during that experience, I think, does tend to direct the mind uh, in a way that allows the default mode network to really re remain focal in terms of at least distancing it from the ex from executive function, from prefrontal cortex functionality. And, you know, this is you've seen trend, you know, across cultures and whether it's the chanting during ayahuasca or, or the didgeridoo, mm -hmm. it takes you to a place where that becomes the focus as opposed to understanding implications of your actions and all the things that are wonderful prefrontal cortex has allowed us to do and does day in and day out. But, you know, I'm just wondering as I'm here with you today, uh, it, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of a bit of theater, right? We're choosing our words and our cadence. And um, so maybe there's some benefits to our time together today from an art perspective. Who knows? Oh, it was one big improvisation. Yes. That's right. Well, I was, We didn't have much comedy, but who knows? I always say I do well, my this... best work when I sleep. And so tomorrow I'll wake up and I will have integrated, right? I will have dreamed about this. We will, you know, I think we don't give us ourselves the time to go, how did that person impact me in this art of relationship and loneliness and isolation are the single biggest issue that I think we're facing globally right now for all the connectivity. There's a really pandemic of isolation and that's something to think about. We've been thinking about that as well. Um, and we've been thinking about it in terms of amygdala activity. We, we touched upon that earlier and how the prefrontal cortex acts through what we call top-down control, the adult in the room, to rein in impulsivity and uh, allow uh, people to be comfortable with connecting uh, to one another and looking out for one another. And interestingly, we're developing a thesis that centers on the notion that the interruption of the connection from the prefrontal cortex to exercise this top-down control is enhanced when there are higher levels of inflammation in the body, in the brain. Mm. So inflammation threatens this ability that we have to connect to each other. And inflammation is fostered by the incredible increase of the, what were once called the standard American diet, then the Western diet, now pretty much the global diet that is pro-inflammatory mm. that focuses on. And I know there are a lot of dots I've just thrown out. I'm having, you know, I have to try to connect them. But basically what I'm saying is that the global dietary changes, because they favor inflammation, are fostering a disconnection from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, such that the amygdala is more influential in terms of our, of our behavior. And that fosters more of a sense of, ice, of isolation and lack of connectivity to others. Mm. It's, it's a bit long-winded. I'm certainly uh, aware of that. But, you know, I think all of us who are thinking about what's going on in the world are wondering why. And we could say, well, this is basic human nature, you know, us versus them mentality. But I think, to be fair, we're at a place now, at least in my lifetime, that uh, I've not really experienced 
to the degree that we're seeing uh, this polarization and the us versus them mentality. But maybe art then is our answer. Maybe we need to really lever, leverage arts uh, more and bring people back to understanding connection to themselves and to each other. That's for sure. Well, to your point, food is art, right? And so really good food, rich, healthy food is really great art. And so, you know, like the environments that Ivy was talking about where we've, you know, designed for sort of utility, we're eating for utility, right? What if we were eating for the sense of wholeness, which we're not, you know, and we're not, we're so not. And so I, I, I think that's a really interesting notion. Yeah, and I haven't well, you know, heard that at, theory before about the inflammation, the separation, but it makes perfect sense, actually. Yeah. Uh, when you look at uh, Dan Buettner's uh, work in the Blue Zones, there's such a connection with food, from picking it from the garden mm -hmm. to working in community to create the meal to the presentation. What an art form that mm -hmm. is, and what a manifestation and demonstration of connectedness uh, in terms of that meal preparation, which, you know, for many people living in, in Western culture, isn't something that's that common anymore. Mm -mm. Right. Well, I really want to thank you. I will, um, you may have heard I was really looking forward to today's uh, time together because uh, it, uh, it it opens up a, a, an area that needed much more exploration on my part and becomes a very, very powerful tool in the toolbox for so many uh, things that we're interested in. So uh, to both of you, thank you so thank very you. much. No, and thank you for getting engaged with this new area, because I think what, you know, what you've done is fantastic and bringing it to the masses to understand it. So I'm honored and thrilled that you see this and, and you know, it's just beginning. So it needs a lot more conversation and exploration. You know, it's interesting. It's just beginning. It's always been there. We oh, only sure. just no, lost we're coming it. back to it. No, we told. That's why yeah. we went backwards and said, "Where did we lose this? It was who yeah. we were." And what then, was the number? Ninety-nine point eight percent of the time we've been the right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, twenty thousand years ago, the caves of Lascaux. Uh, anyway, thank yeah. you both, and I hope we can talk again soon. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so thank much. You. See you later. Bye bye. Bye. Wow. Uh, who knew? Right. Uh, who knew uh, that art and uh, participation and even the appreciation of art had such an influence on not only the brain in terms of keeping our brains healthy, but also even in terms of application as it relates to various brain illnesses. It's an incredible book. Again, Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transform Us, and I strongly recommend it. And I want to also thank you all for spending time with us today. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter here on The Empire Neurologist. We'll be back soon. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.